Exodus chapter 4, starting at verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and the Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. Moses took the staff of God in his hands. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Well, imagine if I were to tell you that you have won an all-expense-paid uh, trip to Hawaii. Sounds good, right? And I'm going to cover your airfare, your hotels, any other transportation that you need, a cab, a rental car. I'm going to cover your food. I'm going to cover your activities. Everything. If I were to say that, most of you would probably say, all right, I am going. When are we going? Yes, that's it, that's it. But there's a catch. The catch is you have to pick the person in your life that you dislike the most, that's your greatest enemy, that irritates you, that rubs you the wrong way, and that person is going to go with you. And apart from the time that you're sleeping, you're going to spend the next two weeks, 24-7, with that person. Probably most of us probably would say, uh, no, no, thank you. Or imagine I tell you, I can make you into a movie star. And you'll have money, and you'll have influence, and you'll have power. But the catch is, you're not going to have a very good home life. You're not going to get along with your spouse. Your kids are not going to like you. But you'll have money, you'll have power, you'll have influence. Have you ever planned to do something fun and exciting, and something you were kind of looking forward to doing? And uh, then maybe you're on the way there and you get in an argument with your spouse or with a friend or a family member. And then by the time you get there, you're like, I don't feel like doing this anymore. I think those illustrations demonstrate that peace is more important than possessions or provisions. It's more important to have peace in our life than it's important to have stuff or even experiences. And in this passage that we're looking at today, we see that Moses has provisions, he has power, he has possessions, but he doesn't have peace. And as we look through this passage, we'll learn that it's possible to have the power of God, to experience the provisions of God, but not have peace with God. 
It's possible to have the power of God, to experience the provision of God, and yet not have peace with God. So over the last couple of weeks, we talked about Moses' journey and how God called him to ministry and called him to lead his people out of Egypt into the promised land. And last week we saw how God gave Moses his power. He gave Moses a staff or made his staff into what was called the staff of God. And it says in this text that he's carrying with him the staff of God, which represented God's power and God's presence with him. He's also given possessions. When he comes into Egypt, he enters with, or into Midian, he has very little. But he leaves with possessions. He leaves with a donkey, with uh, a family, with a, with a wife, with sons. And God has provided him with this wealth. And he goes to Jethro and says, I'm going back to Egypt. And we don't know exactly why he lies to his father-in-law, but he does. Maybe he's afraid that his father-in-law will tell him he's crazy. But he goes and he says, I'm going to Egypt. And then he's on his way. And then as we get to this point in the journey, we, and we see all the things that God did for Moses and the signs that he gave him and the assurances, we think finally Moses is on the right track. Finally, he's doing what God has called him to do. Uh, he was, you know, albeit reluctant to go, but now he's finally doing it and obeying God. But then we're shocked to see that he's in a lodging place and the Lord met, meets him and seeks to put him to death. I mean, what's, what's going on here? Is God kind of schizophrenic? Does he have two personalities? Uh, he's calling Moses to go to Egypt to do this task for him, but in the same token, he's there to put him to death. One commentary that I was reading had this heading that said, Is Yahweh among the demons? Is God good? Well, what is he trying to do here? Is he acting as a harmful spirit to harm Moses? So how can we account for this behavior on the heart of God? Well, traditional scholarship, traditional rabbis have traditionally suggested that God was angry at Moses because Moses failed to circumcise his child. And uh, in Genesis chapter 17, uh, when God made a covenant with Abraham, he gave him a covenant and this covenant sign was circumcision. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 17. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight years old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant in your flesh be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if that's the case, it it makes sense of why uh, Zipporah does this, why she circumcised their son, puts the blood on Moses. And I think there's a measure of truth to this interpretation, but I think that there has to be more to it than that. Because in chapter 2, we see that it's uh, recorded that Moses marries Zipporah, has a son. And we would think at that point, if the circumcision was the only issue, we would think at that point it might mention, and he failed to circumcise his child. Or God commanded him to circumcise his child. 
Or we might expect that when God meets with him on the mountain in the burning bush, that we might expect him to say, all right, I want you to do all these things, and the first thing I want you to do is circumcise your son. So it seems a little bit out of place, and we, it seems like God would have addressed this somewhere before he meets him here on the road attempting to put him to death. So what else could be going on here? Well, I think that throughout Moses' life, we see that he has a big problem with fear. And specifically, he has a big problem with what theologians call the fear of man. He is kind of driven in his life by fear. His flight from Egypt began in fear. Moses kills the Egyptian, and he finds out that other people have seen that. He's afraid. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So he starts off in fear, and then he gets to Midian. He's on the mountain, and then he's also afraid. He's afraid when God turns a staff into a snake, and it says he was running away from the snake. He's, he's, when God gives him this calling, he's like, well, what should I say your name is? And then God says, say I'm... Yahweh, I am, I am who I am. They won't listen to me. Please, send someone else. They're not going to listen to me. And those kind of were legitimate concerns. But I think at the heart of Moses' reluctance was his fear that when he was going to go back, he was going to be killed. Because that's why he left, because people were seeking to put him to death. So he says, no, send somebody else. He's driven by fear. But then before he goes back to Egypt, he's finally given the assurance that the people who sought to kill him are now dead. So that's a comfort to him that now the people who are seeking to harm him have been put to death. And it seems like now he can put the past behind him. He can put his past murder behind him. Yet God hasn't forgot about what he's done. Mankind has forgot. He, the Pharaoh who sought to kill him, the people who were seeking to kill him, they're now gone. But God has not forgotten. Later on in Israel's history, uh, Moses and and God set up cities that were called cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge were cities that were set up so that if a person unintentionally murdered somebody else or, or murdered somebody else without forethought, without being premeditated perhaps, they could run to these cities of refuge. And then the avenger of blood... The person, maybe the person's you know, family members or friends or relatives who wanted to kill and put this, uh, this perpetrator to death, they couldn't harm him. If they're in the city of refuge, they were protected. But if they left the city of refuge, it was free game and the avenger could freely uh, harm them. And I think in a similar way, Moses has fled from Egypt to not a literal but a figurative place of refuge, a place where the avenger couldn't harm him. Yet now he's leaving that place and returning to the place of that crime, and he has to deal with his past. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain killed his brother Abel, and then God said in Genesis, Where's your brother? And Cain says, I, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. I think perhaps in a similar sense, Moses has fled from his sin 
He's fled from his past, and now he's returning. And the blood of the Egyptian is crying out for justice. And so he's going to have to deal with his past. He's going to have to deal with what he's done. And God is not... You know, he does not like God has two personalities that God truly wants to use him. God truly wants to bless him and provide for him. But something has to be done about what he's done. Something has to be done about his past. Sin has to be paid for. And God's justice demands that Moses' blood be shed because of his murder of the Egyptians and his failure to obey and believe in God. Yet we see in the text that that doesn't happen, that Zipporah, his wife, intervenes, that she circumcises her son and touched Moses' feet or legs uh, with the blood. And in Zipporah's actions, we see three different things that kind of illustrate uh, redemption for us. The first thing we see is blood. In Hebrews 9.23, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there could be no forgiveness of sins. Sin demands God's judgment. In the Old Testament, there were many different commands related to sacrifices for sins. And these sacrifices were not literally able to take away people's sins, but they showed people the seriousness of sin and showed people the fact that blood has to be shed, that there must be pain and suffering to deal with the reality of injustice and the reality of sin. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus shed his blood once and for all for sin. Hebrews 9, 13 to 16 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of, of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to, blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living of God? So that's the first thing about Moses' redemption, that it involved blood, just like Christ's blood was shed on the cross for us. The second thing we see is that Zipporah serves as a mediator between God and between Moses. We don't know exactly why Moses is not the actor in this story. We don't know why it's not not him who's uh, circumcising his son. And most likely it was either that Moses was incapable or unwilling to do this. I I would think that based on the text that perhaps he was sleeping and somehow... Uh, Zipporah knew what God was going to do, and so she decided that to intervene on, her, on Moses' behalf so that he might be saved. And in the same way, God sent forth a mediator. When we were incapable and unwilling to save ourselves, he sent forth a mediator, someone who would stand in the gap between us and between God. In Hebrews, uh, or in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 to 6, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself up as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So we see the blood. We see that Zipporah is a mediator, just like Christ was a mediator for us. And the third thing we see is the covenant, uh, the sign of this covenant, circumcision. And in this passage, we... In uh, Genesis chapter 17, we read about how God commanded the Israelites to circumcise the male children. And that was a very significant thing for the Israelites. And that seems very strange to us. And, you know, just reading this passage, it's a very bizarre passage to us. 
But there were a number of reasons why circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Uh, the first thing was that circumcision was a sign of the covenant because it was uh, on the male reproductive organ, and that was kind of related to the promise that God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make a great nation through him, that through him and through his seed, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And through him, one day, the Messiah would come. We also see that when a covenant was made in the ancient world, there would also often be a cutting. So, for example, there would be an animals would be slaughtered. Sometimes they would uh, set the parts of the animal one on each side, and then they would walk together through this, the animals. And so, when sub, when a covenant was made, the literal word for covenant means they would say to cut a covenant. It was even you know related to the covenant making ceremony. And so there was a cutting to indicate uh, the punishment or the penalty for breaking the covenant. Another thing was that this covenant sign of circumcision uh, was permanent and it, devoted, it showed uh, an undivided loyalty or consecration to God. And it was a sign of faith. Scholar Gordon Hugenberger says this, Circumcision was not only an outward sign, but a, a reminder that Abraham and his descendants were to walk before God and be blameless. It was a sign of faith. And so a failure to circumcise a child would have been, in essence, saying, I don't want my family to be a part of the family of God. I don't want them to be a part of the family of God. I'm not a part of the family of God, and I don't want my family to be a part of the family of God. And that's why it would have been serious. And so... In Zipporah's action, it seems that she's demonstrating faith in God and faith that her family should be a part of God's covenant people. And see, to have forgiveness for Moses to be forgiven of his sin for his murder, he needs to be a part of the covenant family of God. He needs to be a part of the family through whom the Messiah would come. The one who would pay for his sins. And so if he's going to be forgiven, if he's going to do what God has called him to do, he needs to be a part of that covenant family. And so this sign of circumcision, Zipporah circumcises the son as a sign of faith. And I believe an indication that she wanted their family to be a part of the family of God. For us who are believers, or who are not believers even, we need to be a part of the family of God in order to experience the grace and forgiveness of God. And for us, the, it's not an outward sign of circumcision like in the Old Testament, which was a demonstration of their faith. It's an inward circumcision, the Scriptures say. That our hearts need to be changed by Christ. That by faith we enter into a relationship with Him. And He changes us and He makes us new. Romans 2, 28-3-1 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So we see these three things that Zippor does. We see that blood is shed, that she acts as a mediator, and we see this covenant sign of circumcision. So, I'll admit this is a really strange passage, a weird passage. But how can we apply this to our life? How does this affect us today? I think that it provides for us a warning and an encouragement. The warning, as we said before, it's possible to have the power of God, to experience the provision of God, and yet not have peace with God. Matthew seven twenty one to 23 says this, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I mean, can you imagine that? That people who maybe have gone to church their whole life, people who have served in ministry, people who have done miraculous signs and done amazing things for God, God will say to them, I never knew you. I mean, it's, it's remarkable that they could experience all this provision and all this power from God and that God could use them and they could get to the end of their life and say, God could say, I don't, I don't know you. I know you did some stuff, but you didn't know me. You didn't have a relationship with me. You didn't have peace with me. If you're here today, you've never entered into a relationship with Christ. You can experience the peace of God today. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've even been in ministry and served in the church and done different things. But it means nothing if we don't have peace with God. If we haven't dealt with our sins before God. And we can turn our lives over to Christ by faith, trusting in Him, trusting in His sacrifice to save us, to forgive us, to make us a part of His family. For those of us who are believers, this is a reminder that we need to keep short accounts with God. It's a reminder that we can be walking through our life and everything can be going good. We could have a good family. We could have uh, you know, a good job. Things are going well for us. We're serving in the church. We're making a difference. But if we don't have peace with God, it means nothing. If we're holding on to sin and, you know, sin that we're refusing to repent of, refusing to confess, it doesn't mean that necessarily that we'll be separated from God if we know Him. But God might need to discipline us and He might discipline us hardly, harshly. It might mean that we don't get to experience His fellowship. It means that we'll be broken, that we'll be in turmoil inside. So that's the bad news. But the good news is we have an answer for dealing with our sin and for dealing with our past, and His name is Jesus. Like Moses, for a while, maybe we can try to run and hide from the consequences of our sin. We can try to run from those who would try to harm us. But eventually, though, Moses had to leave Midian, had, go, had to go back to Egypt, and he had to confront his past. And eventually we need to do the same thing. Whether it's in this, on this earth or after we die, eventually we'll have to answer for our past, for what we've done. But we, like Moses, have a mediator. One who stood in the gap for us. One whose blood was shed for us so that we might become a part of the family of God. So that we might experience forgiveness. So we might be used by God to rescue people from darkness and from sin. And so, as the family of God, for those of us who have accepted Christ by faith, we can run boldly to the throne of grace. We can confess our sins knowing that we'll find grace, knowing that we'll find forgiveness, knowing that we'll find healing. Because there's nothing that can separate us from God's love. When we come to Him, when we turn to Him, when we repent of our sin, our past is the past. 
Yeah, there might be some consequences on this earth for our past. But he's dealt with that on the cross. He's dealt with our guilt on the cross. He no longer is holding that over our heads. He offers us forgiveness. And ultimately, he offers us his peace. That we can live our lives knowing that we're loved by God. Knowing that he can use us for his purposes. And knowing that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you were the mediator for us, that you came to the earth in, in just a baby, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, that your blood was shed so that we might become a part of your family by faith. We thank you that it's a free gift, that there's nothing that we could do to earn your love or your favor, but that you give it to us as a gift. Lord, I pray for anybody here who doesn't know you, that the, today would be the day that they experience peace with you. That they wouldn't wait until the end when it's too late. But today would be the day of salvation. That they would turn from the direction that they're going. And they'd invite you into their life by faith. God, for those of us who are believers. God, I pray that we would walk in fellowship with you. That we would walk in your peace. That when we sin as we all do. That we would be quick to repent. Quick to turn to you. To seek your forgiveness. And we know that as we do that, we'll find healing, we'll find grace, and we'll find ultimately your peace in you. Lord, we thank you for all that you are to us. In Christ's name I pray.